we fundamentally build tools. And so the way we think about our product and offering at OpenAI is uh, we want to expose uh, the power of, of the model, the power of the intelligence to uh, as many people as we can. Welcome to Ask More of AI, the podcast looking at the intersection of AI and business. I'm Clara Shai, CEO of Salesforce AI, and I'm here today with Brad Lightcap, COO of OpenAI, to talk about the future of artificial general intelligence and what government and business leaders need to do now to prepare for that future. Hey, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, maybe we can go back in time a little bit. When did you join OpenAI and what was the organization like when you when you joined? Sure. Well, I joined in 2018. Uh, we were a much smaller organization back then. We were about 40 people uh, and we were a nonprofit. So um, OpenAI started back in late 2015 as a nonprofit. Uh, we restructured in 2018 to be what we now call a cap profit. And uh, since then, we've operated as a cap profit. Um, we have a for-profit entity that is um, our main operating entity, um, but we're governed by our original nonprofit. What does it mean to be a capped profit? Yeah, it's a new structure that we invented um, that we thought was appropriate for uh, the work we do and um, the mission of uh, the original OpenAI nonprofit, which is to build artificial general intelligence that's safe and benefits all of humanity. And so the idea basically was uh, for us to um, have a for-profit entity governed by our nonprofit um, and have the amount of money that our investors and employees could make in our structure uh, be capped at a predefined amount. Um, and the idea would be basically once you hit that cap, uh, all the proceeds in excess of that number uh, flow back to our nonprofit entity um, for the benefit of humanity. So you joined in five years ago now? Thereabouts, yep. And 40 people. And how many people do you have today? Today we're uh, about 700. Um, and we're a little more global. So we've got San Francisco as our headquarters, but um, also uh, active in Europe. Uh, and hopefully a little bit more expansion in 2024. So you joined, it was 40 people. And at that time, were were there teams working on large language models or was it something else? Yeah, at the time, it was a very different paradigm. Um, and the paradigm was reinforcement learning. And it was kind of born of, um, you may remember AlphaGo uh, was the famous result out of DeepMind um, that uh, basically, DeepMind had trained an RL agent to play Go at a superhuman level um, and beat Lisa Dahl um, head-to-head, uh, who at the time was the reigning world champion. Um, and so the, the paradigm was really about training these agents in simulation to, uh, with uh, really um, well-defined reward functions um, to learn uh, to play games, uh, to learn the rules of those games and to master those games um, and to be able to, 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 to eventually beat humans at those games. And so... The efforts we undertook early on were training agents to win at uh, a video game called Dawn of the Ancients, um, which was also called Dota, for those who, who know. Um, and similarly, Google at the time was uh, was training a similar agent to, to learn StarCraft. Um, and so we were in a little bit of a race with Google at the time to see who could get to um, uh, multiplayer uh, superhuman capability in either Dota or StarCraft first. Um, and we, uh, we demoed, uh, our result, um, beating, uh, the best Dota players in the world head to head in team play, uh, on what was at the time our biggest event. Um, and, uh, and that was, that was in 2018. Um, and so it seems like a long time ago, it wasn't that long ago, all things considered. Um, but at the time, yeah, we did not, the, the paradigm of large transformer based, um, models that, you know, we use today that underpin chat GPT and, 
um, and some of the, the, the more generative use cases uh, we did not have back then. And what was the catalyst and when did that transition happen when the team realized, okay, we're really onto something through the transformer architecture? Yeah, so the, the transformer came out in 2017. Uh, I be- believe the original transformer paper came out in 2017, which is attention is all you need. Um, and it took a little bit of time, I think, for the ideas to propagate through the field. Uh, and so we knew RL was working um, and we knew supervised learning was working. And so we thought that the future was some combination of those paradigms. Um, and if we can empirically demonstrate that they get better, uh, predictably better with scale, um, we should continue to invest here. And so that's what we did. We started really in, in, in um, I think it was 2019, more formally, uh, starting to scale transformers, language models. And so GPT-1 became GPT-2. GPT-2, we open sourced eventually. Um, it still wasn't very good. No one in the world super much cared about GPT-2. Um, but by the time you got to GPT-3, we had kind of crossed that quality chasm. And you crossed that quality chasm with both the internet scale of training data, but then you also applied supervised learning in, in the form of, of now you know, RLHF, right? Reinforcement learning from human feedback. What, what insight inspired that? Yeah, well, you know, a lot of the work that we do is not only born out of um, just seeing if we can push state of the art from a technical perspective, but also pushing state of the art from a safety perspective. And so um, one of the things that we had to do was figure out uh, ways to get these models to be performant, um, specific to uh, to how humans actually wanted to use them and how users wanted to use them. Um, and of course, language models, like any other AI model, can be can be abused. Um, and one of the, 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 the mechanisms that we discovered um, that uh, could, could mitigate some of the, the risk of abuse um, was basically giving the, the, the language model a reward function um, and actually teaching it um, when it could actually be, uh, when it was, was able to say certain things and, and, and when in cases we, we would want it to not actually be able to say certain things or not respond certain ways. Um, and so uh, it's a lot of the same underlying properties that make, for example, the model really good at chat. Um, are the same underlying properties early on that we discovered um, could help us with uh, mitigate some of the safety risks um, and avoid uh, some of the the, the, the abuse risk that, that we were worried about with language models. So is this what you thought you were joining back in, in 2018? Like, what did you think you were signing up for? And I mean, could you have anticipated the amazing scale that you, you guys have reached? So, uh, no, certainly did not anticipate um, that this would be what, <laughs> what we would be doing here in 2023. Uh, I'm the business and operations guy, I guess. So for me, I was always thinking about, well, how are we actually going to bring this technology to to users, and who might actually use this technology in this interim period while we're still still scaling it up? So way back when, at the time, naturally, I thought we probably would be building tools and products for gaming companies. Mm. Um, we had conquered, you know, gaming basically as a domain um, where we could train uh, RL agents to perform again at superhuman level, and so. We figured, okay, well, I guess it's we'll we'll, we'll just have a business that um, somehow kind of comprises us um, building uh, building agents and simulation that we can sell to to gaming companies. Um, DeepMind was also starting to do a lot of really interesting work around what became AlphaFold. So, how do you basically uh, teach agents um, in simulation, um, in that case, to predict how protein folds, uh, proteins fold? Um, and we were similarly doing a lot of work in robotics, again leveraging a lot of the same principles. Um, but we had trained a, a robot hand to manipulate a Rubik's cube, um, and that a lot of the the, um, the inventions and mechanisms that came out of that uh, that process actually inform some of the language model work we do today. So this stuff all builds on itself. But um, somewhere between robotics, gaming, and um, and protein folding, I, I figured there was something. <laughs> so, 
And it's, isn't it so interesting that so many researchers, including OpenAI, including Google, including IBM, many of the, the earlier players too, they were really focused on these task-specific RL models, right? Winning chess, winning Jeopardy, controlling a robotic arm. And you know, when at what point do you think it dawned on the community that actually having a more foundational, broad-based set of training would actually outperform that task-specific training? It's a great question. You know, one of the things that felt, even I remember this at the time, that felt brittle about just the kind of RL and PPO paradigm um, was it, the, the world is, is certainly comprised of kind of rules and, um, and there are strategies for exploiting um, the, the kind of way things work. Um, but A is there's a lot of rules in the world um, and some of them are written down and very clear and some of them are kind of unwritten and learned. Um, and then number two is um, there's a lot of messiness. And sometimes, um, you know, things aren't as simple as, as a game. Um, and in a way, I guess maybe nothing is, um, nothing is ever uh, totally incidental. But remember, we, we learned this a little bit the hard way with robotics um, the, because the real world is so messy. The physics is, so, <laughs> is actually really hard. Um, and it was the same policies that really that we were trying to enact in robotics to try and train um, uh, the robotic hand and other other systems um, that just they didn't scale and didn't work exactly like the fully kind of um, in simulation games that we were uh, we were working in. Um, they just didn't work the same way, and so um, that was kind of the, the 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 point. Which I was like, you know, if if we're going to build systems that are really really useful in the real world, it can't just be about learning policies and uh, optimizing against reward functions. Um, it really has to be about giving these systems a broad-based understanding of, uh, of of human knowledge. They have to have that context um, and be able to reason about concepts in that context um, specific to the task they're asked to go off and do. Uh, and so, you know, at the time, I, I was not an input to the te- any of the technical thinking on on this. Certainly, um, I, I wasn't writing any papers, but um, it, you know, again, I guess nothing is coincidental. Um, the fact that transformers came came around and self-supervised learning came around and at the time it did um, was was really important. So just embrace the messiness. And it actually, you know, makes me think about not just physics, but economics and um, so many, so many domains where we do try to come up with these hard and fast rules, but they don't always work, right? It's like works for it's like a rough approximation. But really to actually get it accurate, there is this value in embracing the messiness. No doubt. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's important. I think that's how we, we, as, as humans learn. Um, uh, and we, we learn that, um, just by kind of experimenting and by seeing it, um, and by kind of ingesting it and connecting across a lot of different things. And, um, and that, that same, uh, principle applies here. And, um, and then we fine tune it, right. We, we, we decide what on that baseline knowledge we want to specialize in and get better at, and then make kind of new ideas and observations about, um, and how we synthesize other knowledge, um, to, uh, to to do our, our our jobs and live our lives, and then we can apply it to new domains. And sometimes it, it sometimes the best ideas come when we cross pollinate. Exactly. Very interesting. Okay, so OpenAI twenty eighteen decides to create a for profit entity. They hire you to do business and operations. You come in thinking that you're going to figure out gaming. It ends up becoming this much bigger thing. What have been your your big focus areas and priorities in your role? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is is really thinking about how we work with uh, our customers and users and partners. And so, um, it's you know one of the things is it, this is an entirely new category and it's an entirely new way of building 
uh, software. It's the tool set is, is is completely new. It's fundamentally it's a shift from really deterministic, very logic based uh, building of software to what is fundamentally probabilistic. Uh, and these systems are ex- ex- extraordinarily powerful um, and can do things that we couldn't previously do with software. But figuring out how to harness those systems productively and safely is the challenge uh, across what is a very wide range of users and businesses and partners with very diverse sets of, of applications that they want to deploy these in. And so where where have you made the most progress, do you think, just from a go-to-market and, and customer standpoint? Yeah, well, certainly um, we've been encouraged, I think, just by the um, the amount of developer energy on top of, uh, of our systems. We, we fundamentally build tools. And so the way we think about our product and offering at OpenAI is uh, we want to expose uh, the power of, of the model, the power of the intelligence to uh, as many people as we can. Um, we started with, with an API that served developers, and so they've had a head start in some regards. But um, we now have over 2 million developers actively building uh, on our platform um, and actively building into production, uh, whether it's through their products and their business processes or workflows. Um, and uh, and then the next phase for us was, was obviously ChatGPT. Um, which really was just an abstraction on top of the same thing, right? So um, whereas we previously exposed, you know, basically kind of a, an unopinionated language model through an API, um, to, with ChatGPT, we took the same model and made it a little more opinionated, a little better at dialogue, uh, and exposed it through uh, a simple um, consumer UI. Uh, and again, which for us, you know, it was amazing to see the way people used it, the diversity of use cases. Um, we hear stories all the time from from people that, um, change our thinking on uh, on how useful the technology can be and what it's capable of. Um, and, you know, over time, our hope is is to be able to open up more lanes for people to build on top of that um, and extend its usability and its utility um, into their life. And so that was some of what you saw with our uh, developer day announcement um, in GPTs. Since you talk about developers, I mean, that's a big focus for, for Salesforce also. And I mean, as you as you alluded to, the future of software development is going to change in very fundamental ways. And a lot of what gets hard-coded today, deterministically, if-then statements, every conditional logical branch, a lot of that agents will be able to, to take over. And so, I mean, where do you see software development going? And, and even within your or, own organization, do you have software developers who are actually not coding, but building apps through prompts? Yeah. So I, I don't think AI will completely replace um, the kind of more traditional form of software development. I think fundamentally there still are uh, rules that we want to figure out how to apply as it relates to use of products. Um, fundamentally, we still are going to need to store um, and uh, read and write to uh, to databases. Um, and, you know, that so that that's not going to go away is my expectation. There still needs to be state in the world and state needs to be manipulated and updated. I think the way that we update state is going to change. And so uh, it can change in a few ways. One is um, my expectation is you'll have AIs that are actually um, manipulating that state themselves. And so um, whether it's because they're writing code that's kind of building new systems that can update that state, um, or it's because they're directly updating that state based on actions they're taking or decisions they're making or um, content or, 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 or um, context that they're producing themselves. Um, that will be one way that it changes. Uh, one of the things that we see, for example, that's really interesting is AIs are actually really capable even today of creating pretty high quality websites. Um, and so the idea that um, a user would have to sit down and actually kind of manually create a website or 
otherwise use tools that are abstractions on website creation that kind of let you move blocks around and different React elements around um, may not actually be totally necessary in the future. You actually can get to pretty high quality website design, um, you know, certainly today with, with an AI and I expect in the future will be, will be super high quality. Um, and then you can imagine the same thing playing through in other business processes where you want to update customer records. Um, you want to, um, an AI to take certain actions on your behalf with respect to um, a collaboration with a teammate or a partner um, or, or a client. Um, these are all things that we think are possible in the next few years. It's really exciting. I mean, I know you you, you just launched your GPTs. We have our Einstein co-pilots. And just thinking about which of those workflows truly will be able to be either automated completely or at least generated on the fly by AI is just like such an interesting idea that I think we're just in the very early stages of. For sure. Um, and yeah, we we are um, we're trying to build in that direction um, as best we can, and try and expose as many kind of primitives as we can um, to allow people to, to to pull the technology into those processes. Um, Salesforce is similarly doing that. Um, we've got, uh, and that's I think where our partnership um, has has really shined is um, sharing that perspective of um, there's an entirely different way to engage with software here, to engage with tools, um, and uh, and that's that's exciting um, as giving people the opportunity to kind of combine and recombine um, their data, um, their tools, um, you know, it, it, with context around their customers, their users, um, and what they want to build. Uh, and you, you get an amazing thing at the other side. And it's just so interesting. I love that web website example, because just like if you asked two different developers to, to build that website for you, they might implement it slightly differently. Or even if you ask the same person on a different day, they might they might be inspired one way or another. The stochastic nature of how AI works also means that multiple or the same prompt during multiple different occasions would generate different approaches. And so how do you think about QA and, and trust in this type of paradigm? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's funny. We, we talk a lot to people about um, what role do, do people play in a world where everything is kind of AI-ified. Um, and people kind of have this, I think, somewhat simple assumption that, well, if, if an AI is often doing everything, that there's just no, no place for, for humans. Um, but the thing I come back to is uh, that it's it's really still fundamentally, I think, human judgment um, and human design principles that have to um, have to be be key here. Um, and when you can increase the cycle time on creation and increase the time to uh, decrease the time to value for any given task or any given thing that you want to create, um, it's going to open up, like you said, a range of possibilities that you have for the type of thing you actually want to exist. Um, and so in many ways, that's a blessing because you can ultimately get to something that's much greater than you may have had time to produce, or you can get to more total things. Um, but it's ultimately going to take a lot more input from humans, almost as orchestrators, as judges, um, for kind of how to direct the AI toward the thing they want. Um, and uh, and so I think that that's really the, the role that a lot of people will end up playing in a world where you can offload um, certain parts of your workflow uh, to an AI. And yet the nonprofit arm of OpenAI, you've funded a lot of research into universal basic income. And I think Sam and, and you and others have spoken out on the importance of this. So how are you thinking about this overall impact on society and what can government leaders do to make sure that nobody gets left behind? Yeah, well, so part of our mission really is understanding the, the societal impact of the technology. And so um, we try not to close doors on uh, on any idea that we think might be important to the future with this technology, uh, where this technology works the way we think it will. And so uh, our, our UBI um, projects have been kind of one 
uh, experiment in that direction. Um, I think there's, you know, there's other things that we, we have in mind that we would want to try and, and, and other, other areas we would want to study. Um, but I think the thing that fundamentally we, j- we just need to kind of um, keep an eye on is um, basically kind of how we expect the technology to change, uh, you know, the, the labor economy, to change markets, um, to change the nature of work. Um, and for businesses and countries kind of at the same level to be aligned on um, helping to enable uh, people in a world where you've got really powerful AI. And so um, that may mean, um, in some sense, uh, uh, giving people more, more opportunity to use the technology. Um, we tend to like the concept of democratic access to the technology. So we think it's really important, for example, that um, everyone, regardless of where they sit, regardless of where they work, regardless of where they live, um, is able to experiment with the technology and try it out. Um, it's part of the principles behind why we continue to offer ChatGPT for free um, in, a, in a simpler form, but um, as broadly as we can, um, we, we try to not compromise on that principle. Um, and so that's always the, the guidance I give, whether it's to a country um, or to a, a business leader. Um, it's, it's to make sure that people have access to the technology, to understand it, um, to study its impact, um, and to listen, listen to your users and listen to your, your employees and your, 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 your populations. So you grew up on Long Island. How did you end up on the West Coast and in tech? Yeah, well, so I, I'm from New York. Um, I, I had no idea uh, of anything going on on the West Coast. Couldn't have told you anything about it. I think I'd only ever visited San Francisco um, once in uh, the early 2010s or something like that um, prior to moving here. And so um, I, for a long time, thought I was going to be uh, do something in, in in finance. I grew up in, in college during the midst of the financial crisis. And so um, the, watching kind of the shift away from um, uh, from that industry and focus on other industries. But this was also kind of the 2007, 8, 9 vintage of companies that were starting to emerge out of Silicon Valley. So think um, Airbnb, Stripe, Dropbox, um, those companies that um, were starting to recruit some of the people I knew um, and the more I studied these companies, the more I realized they had these crazy scaling properties and that these businesses could get very large very quickly and were having really important impact um, on how the economy worked. Um, you know, restructuring everything from uh, the, um, uh, how, you know, the hotel um, industry worked to the transportation um, industry uh, and, 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 and so on and so forth. And so, um, you know, at the time it was like, well, I, I think there's something important here happening. Um, I had committed to become, uh, I joined um, JP Morgan as a, I was a healthcare banker for a couple of years. Um, I went and, and paid, paid my dues there, um, but still wanted the, uh, I had the, the, the desire to get out to, to, to California. Um, and so I joined Dropbox back in, in 2013, um, just wanted to see how a company worked. Um, and it was a good experience in, in learning that. And um, since then, it's, you know, the focus has really been investing in and, and building companies. You announced GPTs at your developer day. And one of the examples that, that was shared was, you know, if a chef wanted to create his or her own GPT, they'd be able to do that. And could you just kind of describe how easy it is in that example? Yeah. Well, at the, at the absolute simplest level, it's as easy as describing what you want. Um, so we, we tried to abstract away all of the actual creation of the GPT um, by simply just having um, a way for, for anyone to, in plain, in, in, in natural language, plain, plain language, um, describe the, the, the type of thing they'd like their GPT to be good at. Um, and then the, the actual system will go off and create the GPT in the background. Um, and you can modify it after the fact. But um, the idea was to really try and get people to value 
um, into a, a really magical experience as quickly as possible with as little um, configuration um, and an overhead as possible. So uh, that's where we are today. It doesn't work. It's, it's, it, it may not work super well for every use case. There's some use cases that are a little more technical that require a little bit more of a custom configuration. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it points in the direction, I think, of where we see GBTs going, which is um, ways to direct the model uh, to use tools to reference certain sources of data and information um, and to be um, actually useful for you from a kind of task, from a task perspective um, in being able to, to, um, uh, to, to kind of be more opinionated versions of ChatGPT, basically. So on the one hand, that's amazing, right? Because you've really lowered the bar. Anybody who, who uses natural language, which, which is pretty much everybody, is able to build their own GPT agent. On the other hand, just to, to carry through with that chef example, like say you have 10 different chefs who are all, um, they all specialize in, just make it up, it's like Spanish tapas cooking. How can they differentiate from each other? Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. I think, um, you know, for some people, building GPTs will be kind of a personal project, right? It'll be just, I, I know what I like. I know what access to information I want to enable um, the GPT to have. Um, and I know, uh, the things that, you know, that I care about. And so I want them to be really personal to me and really custom to me. Um, and I don't really care about publishing this thing to other people. I kind of just want it for my own purposes. Um, other people will of course want to publish them and want to share them. And we've got people who, um, are even today, um, inherently creative about the types of GPTs they build. And they're really excited to share them on, uh, on Twitter slash X. Um, and, uh, and so that's great. And so we're, we're going to figure out ways, um, for them to be able to showcase those GPTs, to share them with other people. Um, I think, you know, with, to the extent they, we, we, we announced that we'll, we'll launch a marketplace for these. And we saw it a little bit, I think in the iOS app store, um, there were any number of, of, of applications that all were, were similar, but, um, there's also some really, really creative use cases and applications that, that kind of rose from, uh, you know, from the depths of the app store into, into the top of the leaderboard there. And, um, their applications, I think we still use, you know, a lot of people still use every day, um, including games and, and other things. So, um, we'll see what happens, but, um, you know, with, like anything with, with open AI, um, it's an experiment We're we're learning, um, and we'll, we'll listen to, to our users and, and try and make them better. Do you have any early ideas or advice? Like just, I mean, th- remember like those going back to that same example, like 10 chefs, they're all cooking similar cuisine they've got their different touches to it, but how, how would they how should they think about differentiating their GPT in the GPT store? My advice is really figure out what your what your thing is. Um, there was an example I saw someone post uh, on Twitter. I'll just still call I call it Twitter still. Um, of uh, of uh, someone who is a photographer uh, who had compiled um, writing that this person had done over years about photography. And so, um, and he had taken, what he decided to do is basically take that kind of repository of writing and basically create a GPT based on that, um, that could actually learn from how uh, he critiqued um, photography and now basically is a, is a um, photography critique bot. Um, and this not, may sound trivial. It may sound like something that's not actually important, but um, a lot of people are, are, are aspiring photographers. Um, and are kind of too shy to show their work to their friends yeah. um, for fear of being kind of overly critiqued. So that's a great example. So, I mean, do you think that because of of what you just described, that going forward, people like this photography critic, that they'll be less inclined to have their writings out on the open internet? It's like the opposite of SEO, 
right? Because if it's out there, then anyone can train. Like the general foundational models will pick it up versus keeping it proprietary so that they can retain it for their own GPT. Do you think it's going to shift just like we saw new behaviors emerge, you know, 15 years ago with Google search? It's a good question. Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, I think there's still value to being the progenitor of the thing. Um, and so my guess is, uh, you know, look like Joe Rogan's content, for example, is, is all over the internet. Um, anyone can go out and, and learn to, uh, to create a podcast similar to Joe Rogan. And yet, um, you still listen to, uh, when Joe Rogan does it, does it himself. Um, and that's, that's a, a simple example, but I think there's just something unique about it coming from the original source. Um, and to the extent you can create something that's kind of maintained and updated by and, and, and made better by um, the real thing, I think there's still that kind of, um, uh, there's still a status that's important that's, a, that's, that's associated with that. And so um, that's just my guess. Um, we'll see what happens, but, um, you know, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can to, uh, to make sure that, that um, people have a way to, to showcase the things that they can build, you know, specific to their, their skills and, and, and unique, uh, unique abilities. So brand is more important than ever before. You know, one of the most powerful aspects of generative AI is is the natural language interface and how accessible it is, like you were saying, right? doesn't matter if you're 100 years old, doesn't matter if you're three years old, you can converse with this thing. And it's very human-like. On the other hand, I think another strength is the adaptability of the AI to each person. But it can mean that, you know, children, they they, they get so much social feedback from interacting with other humans. And rejection is a big part of that reinforcement learning. But the AI won't necessarily reject little kids for bad behavior. How do you think about how that might shape the sociology of learning social interactions and what's acceptable and what's not? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's people are going to still have to be really involved in kind of how people use children use these systems. Um, I think it's something that we care a lot about here. Um, You know, you'd asked earlier about kind of what are the types of social phenomenon that we want to study um, in, you know, as part of our mission, um, I think this is probably an area that, that, that we would want, um, what want to study and be interested in learning more about is, um, how do you, like, what is the right engagement model for, for children with these systems? And, um, to what extent should we as builders of these systems and as our users and customers as application builders of these systems, um, ensure that there are safeguards in place to, to, to give parents control. Um, and like you said, for, for, stu- for, children engaging with these systems to know the limits of them and, and, and make sure that um, they're not running afoul of, of those limits. And so, um, you know, totally, it, it's, it's, it's critical, I think, for, for how we develop these systems. And um, we don't, we, these, these are the things that I think we, we, we continue to, um, to really prioritize uh, as we figure out how these systems are used is um, what are these kind of second and third order questions that come out of um, people having access to such a powerful system? And as the systems become more and more capable over time, um, what are the things that we have to be thoughtful about in designing them? You mentioned earlier the the mission of of OpenAI is has been to develop artificial general intelligence AGI. So many people define that in so many different ways. How would you define it? Yeah, you know, so the uh, simplest is, is is I tend to think of it as as systems that are capable of doing pretty much uh, any form of economically valuable work um, that can be embodied in basically kind of a digital substrate. Um, and so you've got a system that is can be pointed at virtually any problem that can be solved digitally, um, that can reason about how to solve that problem, can use the information available to it, um, can work collaboratively with people, with other systems, with other AIs, 
um, to ultimately go off and solve uh, an, an increasingly complex set of problems to a point where the result of that would be indistinguishable from an expert human um, in, a, in a basically kind of unbounded, um, unbounded way. And so um, we're far from that still. <laughs> um, that's obviously a, an, an ambitious goal, um, but uh, that's the way I kind of conceptual, conceptualized it. I think the question for me is, um, is how do we know we're there? Um, and we used to kind of think that, uh, we would kind of like wake up one morning and be like, oh, okay, we've, we've got it. Um, and, uh, there was, we called it at OpenAI kind of the, 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 the light switch moment of like, okay, we've, we, we invented the thing and, and now we have it. And previously we didn't, and the world is different today. And I think I've updated personally on the idea of a more continuous, um, form of progress. Um, some people will call this kind of a, um, uh, like a slow takeoff. Um, where it's not as steep of a, uh, um, of a, of a change in, um, in the capabilities, but that the capabilities kind of compound over time um, in a way where, you know, you look back on like, you may look back on a one day basis and say, okay, it's, things don't feel fundamentally different, but you look back on like a two or three year basis or five or 10 year basis, depending on how fast or slow that takeoff is. Um, and, uh, and you say, wow, things are really qualitatively different. Um, and, uh, so we're, we're still looking for the right evals and the right benchmarks. Um, I think that's, that's probably, uh, that's a big challenge that we face from a research perspective is eventually how do we continue to eval the progress of these systems? But, um, that's how I think about it. Maybe you can ask GPT-5. GPT, maybe we'll have systems that can design their own evals. That, that would certainly be a mark of, of some form of intelligence. Yeah. You spend a lot of time with customers. What are you hearing as... The, the areas where customers are getting the most traction? And then conversely, what are the biggest challenges? Yeah, well, so the, the thing that we see in practice um, is that kind of is surprising, actually. Um, I think when we launched this, this whole journey, we, we kind of thought, okay, there's going to be what looked like a really classic kind of enterprise sales motion here and that um, we would kind of find customers that wanted to implement AI and we would work on these really big engagements with them. And there'd be kind of one thing that we kind of build together. And in practice, I think that's actually not the model that um, we will see uh, as the winning model. Um, I think in reality, the, the way that we've actually seen the greatest impact driven is um, I think maybe similar to actually how Salesforce also looks at it is um, this really kind of organic, like bottoms up, a more democratized um, way of, of using the technology that um, it kind of, for lack of a better um, concept, gives people uh, gives people superpowers. Um, these systems are really, really general. And so if you think about um, where they have the highest level utility, it's in kind of, it's in finding um, where there's, um, uh, where there's uh, basically kind of skill gaps in, uh, in people that, 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 that would otherwise be accelerated by, um, being able to better manipulate, understand, and create information, um, and so, uh, and that's that's a super horizontal, um, super horizontal thing, right? So you could be um, work on an HR team, for example, um, and you may not be the world's best data scientist, or you may not even be a data scientist. Period. But um, having the ability to now kind of you know very deeply manipulate data, um, and in a way that you didn't before, changes how you think about your relationship with data and the way that you can do compensation benchmarking and performance management. Um, similarly, as a software engineer, um, the way you spend your time, uh, you know, may not be as much in trying to figure out uh, between flipping between, you know, Stack Overflow and Google. Um, it may now be um, just asking uh, your system, uh, your, you know, whether it's through Copilot or, or anything else, um, uh, what's the best way for, for me to implement this function or to, to write this, this piece of code? 
Um, and it's able to kind of reason through that and, and, and do it with you. Um, and you spend a lot less time on that kind of more table stake stuff and a lot more time thinking about the architecture or the application you're building or whatever it may be. Um, and so those are kind of the areas that we in practice see impact. And um, I think there'll be, uh, we have a lot of partners that are working to kind of shape that impact uh, in ways that are a little bit more domain specific, whether it's sales, marketing, um, uh, support, um, uh, and then even in domains such as like um, finance, tax, legal, um, and other services. Uh, but I think fundamentally that's the way we, we look at it is this really horizontal value implemented bottoms up um, and there being um, really a, a kind of revolution in productivity. In practice, what, what have been the biggest challenges you've seen customers struggle with when they've tried to implement these solutions? Yeah, well, certainly people have rushed to try and find that kind of silver bullet implementation um, that I think is maybe uh, a little bit out of reach right now, just given the capabilities of the systems. And so, um, you know, the idea, for example, that you could re entirely redesign your support stack um, on, on these systems, um, certainly one day I expect that these systems will be capable of, of basically, uh, you know, fully handling um, most forms of, of support and, and, and in your contact center. But um, for right now, they, there's still a lot of integration that, that's required and there's still a lot of places where um, the systems aren't quite capable enough. And so you're stringing together a lot of little capabilities and that takes a lot of um, of engineering and infrastructure building um, to, to do the right way. And I think my question is to, 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 to partners that want to do that type of work is, um, you know, if how long will that take? Because uh, my expectation is two to three years from now, um, we will have much more capable systems um, that may obviate the need to do some of the work you're doing today. And a lot of the work is, might obviate itself, right? It's it's building blocks to mm -hmm. to arm the the models with the right training or the right semantic search. Um, and I think that's one of the, one of a great example of the partnership that we've had uh, between our organizations. Yeah. And we, we, we like working directly with, um, with companies that are building applications for that reason is, um, a lot of that, uh, the, the, the kind of nuance of what underpins that workflow, um, can be kind of combined and recombined between these systems on a more probabilistic, um, basis versus the kind of more de deterministic kind of software 2.0, um, logic based, um, systems building and, and those products can just get updated. Right. And so mm -hmm. as our systems get better, those products kind of get inherently better. And then ultimately the end result for, for, for your customers gets better. Um, and we don't have to do a lot of that kind of like, um, building and rebuilding, um, trying to keep pace with the technology. And we had such an interesting conversation between our teams the other day about just how powerful that these foundational models are out of the box. And especially when you couple that with, you know, all the data context from something like a Salesforce data cloud. But then we were talking about the role of, of fine tuning. Do you want to share what your team has found in terms of, you know, when does it make sense to actually fine tune your own custom model versus you're getting, you know, 80% of the benefit with 20% of the work without having to do that? Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're still learning this ourselves to some extent, um, but I think in practice, what we see is um, most, most cases of people wanting to fine tune stuff um, probably don't fully require a, a full, uh, a full fine tune. Um, you can get a long way um, by, by prompt engineering and um, by giving the models kind of the right reference points um, to other data sources and other connectors uh, that, that give them the right context to answer your question. And so um, we tend to try and kind of steer people away from being fine tuning being the first thing that they want to do, but certainly in practice there are there are interesting and, and useful um, cases of where fine tuning is helpful. So I like to think of fine tuning really as trying to teach the model 
um, almost like a new style. So if you really want it to specialize in uh, a certain style of text or a certain um, a code base that has certain attributes or um, documents that have uh, uh, certain features to them or, or written a certain way, um, that's where fine tuning makes a lot of sense is there's no real way to prompt that knowledge into the model. Um, it's really better to kind of teach the model effectively um, how you want it to react in response to certain things versus um, trying to kind of describe it. Yeah, I think it's kind of an analogous, just as you were saying, talking about it, to how so many of our customers, they can get along a lot lot part of the way there, 80% of the way there with just declarative tools. And then you can pro-code the last 20, 20% to kind of really get that incremental, but not to start there. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it's what's always amazes me with these systems is if you can be really clear with the instructions um, that you give them, and I mean, almost like uh, embarrassingly clear um, in, in kind of describing each step, um, and then also really being clear about what it is that you want them to be able to return to you and how you want it returned, you get a lot of the way there. So, I mean, even just asking the system to think step-by-step, step, for example, um, has been shown to improve the performance of the system because it actually forces the system to basically go through the logical steps of the thing yeah. um, in a way that boosts performance. And so, um, again, we don't exactly know why these things work the way they do. Um, there's not a like hard and fast rule per se, but um, there's, there's a lot you can do just with uh, kind of engineering the base level system versus um, having to do anything on top. And it's just so neat that I, I think your team has been really pragmatic, right? There's the theoretical and then there's the empirical. And so many of these best practices originated from just your team trial and error and, and then sharing those best practices. It's really neat. Yeah, we, we, publish, um, we publish cookbooks uh, on basically kind of each of our features that we release um, that should give you a sense if you want to access them for... Um, how these, uh, how the things that we've learned in, in using our systems ourselves, um, and where we've seen our customers have success with these, we've tried to collect those best practices in those. What keeps you up at night, and what are you doing about it? Oh God, I get this question a lot. Um, yeah, well, so um, certainly, uh, you know, one is, is is obviously just just growing our company and and, and making sure that we um, have the, the the people that we need here to continue to serve our customers, and so. Um, we're, we're in a, a, a state of, of, uh, of growth for sure. Um, but, um, that's, that's a controllable problem. I think the longer term thing is, um, comes back actually to an answer I gave earlier in, in this interview about, um, the, uh, the kind of second and third order effects of the technology. And, you know, I think we spent a lot of time here thinking about, um, how to safely design these systems and how to safely design AI. And, for as much as we can, I think, get the, the safety and alignment components right from a kind of technical perspective and a deployment perspective, the things you can never predict are kind of the like second and third order social effects of what these systems kind of mean for the world. And I think that um, some of these things will be unambiguously good um, and there'll be uh, there's just tremendous potential in these systems. And we wouldn't be pursuing this work if we didn't think that that was true. Um, but there's always kind of the weirdness um, of how. Uh, these systems work and, and what they um, ultimately mean for how people use technology that are hard to predict. Um, one example someone gave me the other day that I thought was apropos was, uh, you know, is it possible that someone could at some point be in a, a relationship, a romantic relationship with an AI? Right. Um, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem ridiculous uh, based on kind of what the systems, systems would be capable of in a few years. Um, and is that something that, you know, how do we kind of as a society, like, you know, legislate around that? Um, and do we develop the antibodies to that as a society that we just kind of, um, we, we just adapt or is this something that is going to cause um, some level of, of, uh, of distrust in these systems and, and their makers? I don't know. 
Um, but that's something that we think a lot about. So something I always ask our guests is just, what does this mean for the next generation of people? We have a lot of parents or aunts and uncles, grandparents, um, thinking about how to raise their children and their loved ones. How should we change education, both in a formal setting as well as at home? What can what can parents and guardians do with their children? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because in a way, the technology is almost kind of as suitable for a hundred person who's a hundred years old as it is for a person who um, is a few years old and wouldn't really otherwise be capable of using uh, using a computer for anything particularly useful. Um, and I think we we underappreciate the the impact and how profound the impact of that is going to be. Um, and so my hope over time is that the model that we have for computing and for kind of human computer interaction starts to just reduce to that more kind of elemental level of engagement, um, where it's a machine that works for you. Um, it, you really, it is, it is a, you know, capital P personal level of computing. Um, and I think education will be one of the things that comes out of this as important in the next wave is if you think about how these systems can be used, uh, for learning, and that's not just learning in a primary school context, but learning in a kind of, uh, professional context, a postdoctoral context, continuing education context, um, professional education context, um, these systems kind of knock down that barrier uh, to information and to concepts um, and to how concepts are conveyed in a way that I don't think we've ever really had before in human history, um, absent the, uh, the, the, the advent of basically kind of personal tutoring. Um, and we know that people who get personal tutoring have substantially better uh, better outcome, but I think fundamentally that is the thing that we can expect is um, a, a wave of technology here that just feels fundamentally much more personal. What's the role of a school in, in that scenario? Do we need schools? Um, I think it's really important to that we have places to retain um, uh, the social interaction um, and the kind of community-based learning that we do today. Um, I think for the purpose of kind of generating new ideas and being collaborative and generating those ideas um, and sharing experiences, sharing perspective, um, we, we still need to engage with with people. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and for being an amazing thought leader and, and partner. It's really awesome to work with you and see all the, the contributions that OpenAI is making to the field. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun to be here. Three takeaways for me. Number one is that there is tremendous automation potential at a level that we just have never seen before that is going to happen. It's actually happening right now starting for those in roles where they spend a lot of time either doing content generation, production, or any type of analysis. And it'll be a AI will be a tremendous co-pilot for anybody in those roles. Number two is that, you know, the AI still has a long way to go. So there are some near-term benefits that'll unlock, but for a lot of the, the autonomous use cases, those are still further out. And um, it's going to take a lot of, of adapting and imagining to get to. Last but not least is that education will need to fundamentally change and that, if anything, schools will be more important than ever, less so for the academic subject matter and more so for kids to learn social interaction with each other, not just with an AI. Well, that's it for this week from Ask More of AI. Join us wherever you get your podcasts and, and follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, or X. Thank you.